Hello and welcome to Surveyor Says, the podcast from the National Society of Professional Surveyors. Each week, we bring you fascinating guests that are involved in the profession of surveying. We cover a lot of ground, including table lay talk with Gary Kent, point of order with the NSPS Joint Government Affairs Team, future focus, highlighting current and future leaders of the profession, and everything survey-related in between. Thanks for joining us here on the podcast and hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Surveyor Says. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Kurt Sumner. Thanks for joining us for another session of Surveyor Says, the NSPS podcast series. We always are looking for guests who are interesting and have an interesting story to tell. And our guest today fits that description quite well. He also happens to be talking to me today about someone that we in the surveying community all know quite well, George Washington. Uh, as we've talked about off air, uh, George Washington is sort of the one of the heroes in the surveying business, uh, probably more so because he was a president and we can claim that there was some surveyors who were president, but, but nonetheless, as a Virginian, it's, uh, it's a great story for me. So with me uh, today, excuse me, I have John Burlaw. John is the, the author of a number of books and other pieces. This particular one is called George Washington Entrepreneur. I found the title to be very interesting from the perspective that most of us read history and we read history about George Washington, the warrior, George Washington, the politician, George Washington, the president. But we didn't necessarily think of George Washington, the entrepreneur. When you visit Mount Vernon, I guess you get a little bit of that, perhaps, but not to the extent that it's covered in your in your book. John. So thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to have you on the show uh, to talk about what you do and uh, not only that job, but how that relates to writing books and, and perhaps other things that have historical significance. So uh, I really do appreciate you being with me today. Well, Kurt, it is such a pleasure to be on uh, to be on Surveyor Says. And uh, and you've been very helpful with the research of the book about I didn't know that much about the profession of surveying today or in the in the past. And I learned so much uh, from you and your colleagues. And as you said, Mount Vernon in the past 10 years has started has really started to look at some of Washington's business enterprises like they rebuilt the distillery, the whiskey distillery he built after he was president and also the flour mill um, uh, before he was president, before he fought as, uh, as general and you know, showing his innovations. They make flour and they make whiskey the way he did. So there are a lot of things. If you haven't been to Mount Vernon, say in the past 10 or even five, five years, I would say go. There are so many new things, uh, both about George Washington's achievements on the battlefield and in business. But I was even able to find even more things by looking at some of George Washington's uh, business invoices, ledgers, um, and his correspondence, a lot of which is online. Even shipping orders tell you about what books he's ordering. So it's just he's had a fascinating, you know, non-political, non-military career, 
In fact, if it weren't for those achievements, he may have been credited, I, as he, I feel he still should be, as one of America's earliest entrepreneurs, and it all began with surveying. Yeah, we like I said, we we look at the surveying work that he did, and he he started actually at a fairly young age, right? Sixteen, I guess you could say he was surveying around the house when he was when around his uh, uh, farm when he was the farm where he grew up at. It was at even younger than that. But it's important to remember, and I talk about that. It's important. It's important to know that his background was not as wealthy as that of uh, say. Thomas Jefferson or John Adams. I mean, he wasn't among the poorest of the poor, but his father died when he was 11. And since he was a middle child, he did, he had two older half brothers. He didn't really inherit that much. In those days, the oldest uh, child did. So he didn't inherit Mount Vernon, really wouldn't possess it, you know, through a series of unusual circumstances, you know, for the, for the, next, uh, for the next 20 years. So he had to have, since he didn't have that much land, uh, he had to have a profession, and surveying started to be it, starting when you know, Lord Fairfax and his family, the Fairfax family, who lived at Belvoir, which is near Mount Vernon. For those in Virginia, the, the Belvoir property is where it's no longer standing, where Fort Belvoir is. And of course, the Fairfax family is whom Fairfax County is named after, um, the Fairfax County, which is a suburb of... Uh, of DC and they and he surveyed undeveloped land in the Shenandoah Valley and then did some of the boundary lines and surveying for the city of Alexandria in 1740 when it was founded in 1749 when Washington was just 17 and then uh, just several jobs around uh, you know like uh, hundreds of jobs just around this around the state of Virginia and really set up a lucrative surveying freelance practice and he would buy some of the land part of the land that he was surveying he got sort of insider tips about what's going to be the next real estate and also would use the knowledge of the land's topography and other things about and land use for some of the battles in the revolutionary war yeah that's uh, interesting you were talking about the land one of the one of the pieces of one of the surveys that he actually did was a a parcel called the turnip patch, which you probably have seen that that map. I don't know, but it's we use it um, when we do Boy Scout merit badge. The 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 Boy Scouts have a merit badge in surveying, and our organization has sponsored that for a really long time at the jamborees. Uh, I've been among groups of people who have gone to Mount Vernon and dressed in period costumes and used old equipment to show the scouts how surveying was done back in the day, but the turnip patch was the was the one drawing we always showed people because it had a cool name. Uh, but uh, it was it was really interesting. And another thing that I found interesting in reading about the book is the concept that having hundreds of acres was not having a lot of land. You know, in today's world, if anybody's got 20 acres, it's like they own a lot of land in a metropolitan area like where we are now, obviously not in farming country, but uh, to to have that concept that several hundred acres was not considered much land. And if you look at it, his family had thousands of acres at, over time, right? Uh, they did, but he didn't necessarily get that. Right. And uh, it's it's funny because his uh, uh, his father 
was um, actually had iron ore deposits uh, on hit on some of his land right when it was getting valuable and he bought more land not necessarily for the farming capability but for the iron ore deposits so Ferry Farm where George Washington spent his boyhood in in Fredericksburg um, was you know not necessarily which he did inherit some of wasn't necessarily rich farmland it was it was valuable because it was close to the uh, to the uh, to the iron uh, to the iron mine so um so so that's but that's sort of how george washington's whole family was rooted in uh in in entrepreneurship so but washington knew the value and he would acquire land sometimes he would take land as payment for surveying because you know you didn't really have a steady monetary system there were different types of currency and he would learn about acquisition he so he would started like when he was a teenager, I mean, renting to tenant farmers. And that was when his brother still owned uh, Mount Vernon before his, you know, when his brother was ailing, but hadn't passed uh, passed on. So he really didn't get Mount Vernon until he had bought some land around there and then inherited it when his, br when unfortunately, uh, tragically, his brother died. And then a few years later, his brother's wife and, uh, and their little girl died. And he was next in line in the in the family but he had had like that was 20 years later he had this experience of of entrepreneurship and was really was one of the had one of the best reputations for surveying in virginia before um uh, before he actually had full, full ownership of mount vernon so would it be safe to say that some of the other entrepreneurial endeavors that you mentioned earlier uh that he began to uh, engage in did they come along after he was at Mount Vernon or had he started some of that type of things beforehand? Oh, oh, much beforehand. Surveying, he started when he was 16. I mean, he was living with his brother at Mount Vernon for part of the time, but he didn't get fully get Mount Vernon until uh, full title to it until 1761. And he began surveying in 1748. So and there was like a 13 year gap when he was surveying. And then in between that time, he fought in the, he also fought right after he spent a, a few years of surveying in the, in the French and Indian war, where he did do some surveying as far as, you know, seeing where the French settlements were. In fact, that was one of the things that attracted uh, British officers to him was his surveying experience there. Yeah, we don't, sometimes I guess we don't, we as surveyors in, in, times of peace, so to speak, or in a different era, don't necessarily think about that that element of a surveyor's work, how useful it is in uh, in fighting a war, for example. Right. He knew, I think, in the Second Battle of Trenton, I'm not an expert about his, uh, his, his, his uh, military strategies, but I know when things like the Second Battle of Trenton and other things where they were looking at the weather and you know what uh, the soil and the battlefield. He um he, one of his advantages was he knew the land better than the British, and he would always he was asking the Continental Congress that we need map makers. He was hiring the best cart tried to hire the best cartographers of his day to map out the terrain. And he did surveys, although not you know not for professional work for the rest of his life. One of his last surveys of Mount Vernon was shortly before he died in 1799 so it was a skill he had he had always he had always used and and never forgot so 
maybe you could share with us some things that that we probably wouldn't know about about George Washington that that you brought out in the book. Well, what just some little fascinating things like that some things you think were just wouldn't be he wouldn't have known about or wouldn't have experienced he did like he loved pineapples for instance and and when i thought about that at first i was like well how did he how would he have gotten access to pineapples when you know hawaii wasn't even a a, ter- <laughs> a, a territory it would be 100 years before you know america would before americans would go to hawaii and uh, let alone it becoming a state but they did have pineapples in barbados and he went there when his brother was sick when when george washington was was 19 and that was actually his only trip leaving the the north american territory but he 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 fell in love with pineapples there wrote about how much he loved he loved them washington did a lot of writing and personal journals and everything and and the, those have been preserved as well as his business orders he was 14 so it's really a treasure trove material even if he never sat down to write and an autobiography and he wrote about how much he loved pineapples and uh, and would always would order pineapples to be shipped and then in the 1780s right after he retired as general before he became uh, was called on to be president he had a greenhouse built at mount vernon to grow lemon lemons limes oranges all the citrus fruit that as you and i know living in the northern part of virginia you really can't grow in the winter so he was building a glass greenhouse back then when very few of them, some were in Europe, but very few of them were in the were in the colonies. He took uh, it was a it was a, a widow in Maryland that he corresponded with, and uh, and took uh, and just was able to get you know learn from her and uh, about about that uh, Mrs. 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 Carroll, who I mentioned in the first part of the book. So a lot of things, and also he predicted, maybe in jest, but he still predicted it: international air travel. The, in the in the 1780s was when the French the there were the first French helium balloonists taking short flights with balloons and he welcomed some French balloonists here you know to Philadelphia which was the capital when he was president and he including you know had gave them permission to to launch on on the on the federal lands and had a cannon fire salute and he wrote to one of his friends that you know soon we may be going to paris by quote flying through the air so he had a really imaginative inventive mind despite not going to college to college things you know and it was creative in his own way as what we associate with jefferson and franklin and hamilton yeah. so he was much more than just based on the dollar yeah that that's all very interesting stuff i i just I haven't had the opportunity yet to read all the way through the book because uh, my copy's still at the office and I'm not there. So I'm so eager to get started uh, reading uh, all everything that's that you're going to be talking about in the book because, uh, as you say in your in your introduction, he was such a, a I, I don't know is Renaissance man a good term to use for him? I don't know, but I think he was, but also he was creative, but also also very disciplined one of the things is it's often said you know washington didn't have formal education but he learned from experience and he clearly did you know he and he learned from his mistakes and he was able to take lessons but he also read voraciously 
he may not have known Latin, say, like Jefferson, but he read a lot of different types of books, like, say, from philosophy. He probably read Adam Smith's uh, book, Wealth of Nations, laying out the philosophy of, of capitalism. Um, uh, in fact, we have underlying assets, so he almost certainly read that. But, like, say he wanted to be a better horseman, he would order, we know from his invoices that we still have, that he would order books about horsemanship. And there was another biographer, Kevin Hayes, who won the Mount Vernon Prize, who just traced, you know, when he ordered this book, say, about horsemanship to events on, on, uh, in his life. And Jefferson called him the, the best, called Washington the best horseman he'd ever seen. But that wasn't just from natural ability or even from experience. He read books. He would read the equivalent of how-to books, how to be a better horseman. Read lots of books about agriculture. He read books like The Complete Surveyor about surveying. Read lots of books about agriculture from the authors of the day, like Jethro Tull, who was actually an agronomist at the rock band in the 60s, was named after, and Arthur Young, and had extensive correspondence with Arthur Young about um, uh, land, where he said things like land's plentiful, but it won't always be so. We need to learn about land conservation and uh, crop rotation, which Washington was a, was a pioneer of things like crop rotation. So he kept up with the latest scientific trends. In fact, he's known by uh, people who study mules and what they did as the father of the American mule, because he was, one, he was the first to introduce mules in America by importing, you know, French and Spanish donkeys, then uh, breeding them with mares here. So uh, he did genetic, the genetic engineering of his day. He was just, uh, uh, he, 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 was, he was very much a Renaissance man in his own way. Yeah, I remember when I read that part about the mules. Uh, obviously, it's the first time I'd, I'd heard of that. But it was also the first time I'd ever thought about how mules came to be. You know, we, we sort of take things for granted when we're around them, right? So uh, that was an enlightenment to me to know that he was the person who uh, actually made that happen. That, that was pretty pretty interesting. But one of the yeah. things you just said, uh, I think is pertinent for our conversation today. And th that is the the phrase you use, learn from experience. And the reason that is interesting and relevant for our conversation is that historically, surveying has been a profession that one learns from experience down through history, working with other surveyors, learning the things you need to do, uh, learning about the value of certain way data and how you analyze it and all those kind of things. It's been only within the last maybe uh, less than 50 years, I guess, certainly that the idea of a, a, a college degree was, was required to be a surveyor because the nature of the way things were done, people could learn it through apprenticeship. And then when things got a lot more sophisticated in terms of uh, technologies that were integrated into surveying and people had to better understand them, it was important to learn all about those types of things uh, as well as the the hands-on. So even when one goes to university now to get a degree, when they're going into the field to survey somebody's property, there still is a learning curve that would be similar to the learning curve that a Washington or somebody like me, for example, went through to learn how to 
gather data, how to analyze it, how to read it, how to understand what it means that you really learn by doing. Right. And Washington, two things about that. Um, very good points. Um, Washington did learn a lot by experience as the surveyors today, but he read, he read books on geometry. I think there was a book he read called The Complete Surveyor that was about surveying and, uh, and math. Uh, so what texts there were today about, there were in that day about surveying plus about uh, geometry, math, he would read. And the other thing is Washington did not go to college and surveying is a very viable profession still in demand i didn't realize you know land still changes even if it's even if it's developed so but i think you know not everybody the four-year liberal arts education isn't the path for everyone and we should have more vocational tra training in in fields like like surveying and there's no and there shouldn't be a stigma that you didn't go to Yale or, or a four-year college or whatever. So, you know, th this should this should be encouraged as ways to for people to pull themselves up like uh, like Washington and like uh, and, and like Lincoln did. I mean, Jefferson was also a surveyor, but he 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 did go, he did go to college. But uh, uh, but so I this is the thing we can learn. We can learn from Washington there that there's nothing, you know, there's there's nothing wrong with learning or starting out to be a, like a uh, what what could be considered a vocational job like a surveyor? I mean, three of our three and probably four of our presidents uh, were, were were surveyors, as well as uh, as well as of course some uh, people like the African American scientist and astronomer Benjamin Banneker. Ba mm -hmm. um, he surveyed D.C. What the uh, and and then and then Henry Henry David Thoreau worked as a surveyor at some time. So so many people. It's it's just it's a it's a wonderful profession that is uh goes back to washington's day and is still in in uh, in demand in fact you said something i quote you in the book about that if you have curiosity good moral values other things you know you could be uh that's what you want in surveyors today and it's it's like it's i said it's funny that that's also what we want in our presidents and political <laughs> leaders as well as as well as business leaders yeah i don't know if we're if we have any uh surveyors out there who are ready to go to the political side and become president i don't know about that but uh, um nonetheless there in a way there's a political aspect to what we do because you're always providing your information to people and you have to do it in a way that's convincing in a way that's believable and understandable because as you said only surveyors really know the intricacies of what goes into the work. And uh, obviously Washington was was extremely good at that, not only in surveying, but in everything he did in his life. So I was, I was curious, as you were going through your research uh, down through time, not necessarily just for this book, but was there any one thing that stood out to you? I know you talked about the entrepreneurial nature and, and a lot of the attributes that he had um, that, that perhaps allowed him to be that Renaissance man to to become a national leader as well as a a farmer and and a leader in a variety of different things was was there some aspect about him that was identifiable that that said to you okay this was the key this was what made him who he was that's hard to pin down but I would say 
his adaptability to different conditions and not being uh, uh, stuck in, you know, stuck in ways that are outmoded. I mean, it's sort of the book, uh, Who uh, Who Moved My Cheese came to mind and other, other self-improvement books like that because he could have, you know, sat back and, um, uh, um, and just thrown tobacco. I mean, he had married Martha and she and the widow of the, of one of the richest men in, uh, in, in Virginia. So he could have, you know, he had some of her land holdings and Mount Vernon that he was in control of, but he saw like sort of the danger signs of dealing with the British with tobacco, the, the duties and things like that. The fact that there was a tobacco blood, blood in, in Great Britain and there was no domestic market. There was no way to differentiate or brand tobacco. Plus he thought in Mount Vernon's case, it was harming the soil. So he, just over the span of a few years, just gave up growing tobacco, which was unheard of, and, and grew wheat, which only some of the small immigrant German farmers were growing. He grew wheat and hemp and diversified his crops. And then he built a flour mill for, for the wheat and then was able to, before there was any kind of trademarking law, I mean, before there were any U.S. laws because we were still a colony, he was able to register he had created a law that allowed people to register their brands of, of, of flowers when he was in the colonial house of Burgesses. So he registered the G. Washington, the equivalent of a trademark at the Fairfax County Courthouse, and then would ship that flower noted with G. Washington um, all over the colonies uh, to Great Britain and to the West in the part of the West Indies that was under British control. So he had a nationally branded product uh, about a hundred, at least you know, more than a hundred years before you'd get something like Heinz ketchup or some of the before branding really began. And because of the differentiating that pro, uh, uh, product, there was a premium on Washington's flour. And it may have been that people knew his leadership from that. And that may have even been a factor of his being appointed general because John Adams in nominating him to lead the Continental Army and nominating George Washington said, mentioned his in Washington's independent fortune. I mean, there had always in, you know, quote, independent fortune. And there had always been a question among historians about why was he named general on the first ballot? He wasn't, his record really wasn't that, I mean, he wasn't like a high ranking general or anything in the French and Indian wars. So it couldn't have been solely that Adams did vouch for him. I think people knew that because they may very well have been familiar with the George Washington flower brand. And just as having an independent fortune impresses people today and is seen rightly as a prerequisite skill, it may have been back then. So adaptability, and he showed this as, as precedent and other things, and also willingness to listen, I would say. There's nothing, for instance, in the Constitution about a president having a cabinet and listening to different voices, but Washington set up that tradition as president with Jefferson and Hamilton. So listening to others, learning and adapting and not being afraid of change. Sorry about that. My cell phone was about to draw my attention away. Yeah, that, that, that's fine. That certainly makes sense. Willing to listen. I obviously that's a trait that that's a great one for any of us to have, right? Uh, for sure. But as you were talking about all the things that he foresaw and was able to identify uh, I guess the, the word intuition came to mind that uh, he had this ability to 
to see what was around him and visualize what might be, maybe in a sense, uh, how he might be able to take a particular circumstance and and utilize it or change it into something to make it better and or expand on or whatever. But all of those traits obviously make for a good leader. And uh, I think we as Americans are, are uh, what's the lucky might be the word, fortunate to have had someone as the very first president of our country uh, who had those characteristics. Very much so. And of course, one of his biggest accomplishments is, of course, what he did not do, and which is he did not uh, stay in power forever. He voluntarily uh, re retired after leading the Continental Army to victory. Then he was called upon to president, would be president, but left uh, voluntarily after two terms. I mean, the, really one of the first peaceful transfers of power um, uh, in the in the world. And so that was, and so it's, he was always seemed to be more comfortable, more at home at Mount Vernon. And so I thought it was worth looking at, you know, what Mount, what he did at Mount Vernon that he, uh, he loved so much. So did you get to spend a lot of time there as you were uh, preparing for the book? I mean, obviously you, you visited many times for sure. And, and I'm really, I really like the new, uh, I don't know if it's the museum is what you call it, but uh, the the uh, the thing they've built for him there at Mount Vernon now that that's I guess you could call it a museum that tells a lot about his life, not in the detail that you and I are talking about today, I don't think, or maybe it's there and I just didn't see it. Right. Well, they have a lot there, the interactive museum, where now they have like a a 4D movie about uh, about you know where you can they call it uh, you know be George Washington, um, uh, where you can you can act in, in scenarios and like you can sort of feel even the the raindrops and they've rebuilt the whiskey distillery. They still make whiskey from uh, from that distillery based on his old recipe. In fact, I think they have like an, uh, a liquor store license from the state of Virginia to, to do that, do that as a special one. So there is a lot at Mount Vernon and I also use the new uh, Mount Vernon li presidential library. He was, he only got a presidential library there a few years back but there are so many books you know about him and about his time and everyone at Mount Vernon I think profusely in the in, in the book um, they were just so so kind and so helpful with research a scholar that has been there a long time Mary Thompson I would be constantly emailing them and asking questions and they just answered it so patiently so very much I would encourage everyone um, I think Mount Vernon may reopen later this month they're doing a lot of virtual events I'd, encourage everyone to go when you know when they can go and once it fully reopens and to follow things like the mount vernon digital encyclopedia on the website which is just like a a resource of such a resource of information so they've really in fact mount vernon itself was an entrepreneurial story it was um uh, a group of ladies uh um uh starting with ann pamela cunningham in the 1840s just didn't like the way it was falling into disrepair and they raised the money to buy it, and uh, and it's still run by the Mount Vernon Ladies League. So it's very much an entrepreneurial story itself of how it was preserved, and it's just a part of living history now, with no government funding. Yeah, we had a little bit of experience with with the association when we were doing the Boy Scout Marriage Badge thing. Um, they were so gracious to us. 
Uh, they even gave us costumes to wear. Uh, you know, I, they have a playhouse there, I think. And uh, but they had period clothing. So when we would go there to to do the surveying merit badge, they would supply the clothes for us to wear, which was really neat for us. Um, I have a lot of pictures of those. I look a little goofy in those photographs, but nonetheless, uh, we were very appreciative of the way they treated us as well. There, no question about it. So you've spent a lot of time on this book, and I know you've spent time not just in for this in this book, but otherwise as well. So now that we're here in this point in time with the book, um, are you going to rest on your laurels now or are you going to find another big project? Well, I have other big projects now, including I'm looking at uh, barriers to entrepreneurship uh, and, uh, you know, holding the government accountable for, for when, you know, laws are made into regulation. They don't always follow the law. In fact, that's why I looked at this book. In fact, I talked about that. You know, what are the barriers to somebody who wants to start a career like George Washington, including, you know, occupational licensing that are two restrictive requirements for college degrees, but also things like uh, this didn't come up when I was writing the book, but I'm looking into this um, laws that restrict freelancing like the AB5 in California that George Washington was basically a freelance surveyor. What have you been able to start up if they did that? And I looked at and so I look at um, things like financial regulation and what's the impact on entrepreneurs, what's the impact on companies raising capital. And I looked, I also looked at uh, what are the regulations for this book in George Washington's day and how the British, you know about the, one of the stories of the taxes, but sometimes overlooked is in addition to the taxes, the British were not even allowing the colonists to, they would come down on them if they saw them making nails, for instance, in a blacksmith shop or a sickle, instead of uh, importing those and paying the duties from Great Britain. They didn't want, they had actually the Iron Act that prevented the colonists from making finished uh, iron products. So as historian Woody Holton was saying, the taxes, like the stamp tax, other things, were sort of the straw that, that made, broke the camel's back. And just different types of money today, you could compare like tobacco warehouse receipts to different types of currency. You could compare that to cryptocurrency. And I look at financial technology, financial regulation in my job as a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. So this is going to inform the other projects I do now about, you know, how we, um, you know, how we help entrepreneurs and consumers and investors and, and foster innovation, being that Washington, I call it, I would call him the father of innovation. This will inform everything I do. And now I have this historical perspective on sort of what make on what makes America great, and hopefully others re who read the book will have that too. So is it is your your uh, your job is that a, a private entity? Yes, it's a private nonprofit. It's a DC think tank that is was formed in 1984. Uh, that that looks at uh, that looks at we like to say we like to have regulation. Uh, uh, we look at the effect of regulatory barriers on the economy and everything from uh, uh, from, you know, building your own business to, you know, the barriers to life saving drugs that we were that they were that uh, that they were, you know, lifting. And in some cases and, and we hope in some cases lift permanently, say, in, in the in the in the in the covid crisis, we have a focus. We use the hashtag never needed and talk about just 
excess excess red tape there and barriers to innovation and uh and uh and so we promote things like access to capital financial inclusion other things and uh that this is and 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 we're unapologetic to say capitalism and now you could say that you know from my research that capitalism and entrepreneurship innovation were all in this country's roots with george washington exactly well i really appreciate you being with me today i can't wait for this this uh recording to come up on our surveyor says series because i know people are going to be excited to to hear it and uh, i very much appreciate you joining me and sharing uh everything that went into the research and the book itself and i'll encourage all of our listeners to be sure to buy a copy oh it's been a pleasure now it's called george washington entrepreneur out june 30th uh and and it's uh, available uh on amazon barnes and noble books a million or your favorite book website or or local or or local bookstore just ask for it it should be available everywhere george washington entrepreneur thank you thank you so much for having me kurt thanks so much take care You've been listening to the Surveyor Says podcast, brought to you by the National Society of Professional Surveyors. If you have any questions about today's episode or any other topic, please email us at info at nsps.us.com, and we are here to help. Visit our website, nsps.us.com, to learn more about our association, the programs we administer and support, our sustaining members, and information about future episodes of Surveyor Says. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, as well as our podcast host, Podbean. And remember, it's a great day to be a surveyor.